Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Watty and Jack on F1 where Watty, John Watson, five-time Grand Prix winner, and Jack, me, Jack Nichols, a commentator who doesn't really know what he's talking about, discuss everything regarding Formula One. And coming up on today's show, we discuss the opening round of the 2018 Formula One season in Melbourne. It was Lewis's race to lose. And funnily enough, he lost it. How can we make Formula One exciting again and competitive? Frankly, it gives motor racing a bad name. And motor racing is meant to mean people compete and race and try to pass and do pass, but we're not getting any of that. And what to look forward to over the rest of the year? I don't know. I mean, I'm exasperated and I've only begun. So, John, you were in Melbourne. Did it? Does it feel like a different place now formula one with the new ownership and all of that or does it just feel the same old start of a new season excitement fundamentally you walk into the paddock and there are no changes i think if you look closely you, you would see that there are probably a few more people because the allocation of accreditation is now a lot more generous than it was under the previous ownership so consequently more people in fact i bumped into a friend a friend from London, but who originates in New Zealand, who's a massive car enthusiast. I said, what are you doing here? Who gave you, <laughs> give, me see, give me that pass. I want to see who gave you that pass. Did anybody stop you and say, how have you got a pass? How are you in here? I've got to explain <laughs> who I am, what I've done, why am I here? And in fact, when I went to pick up my accreditation, I had to go through the whole gamut. And then all of a sudden, oh, we want to take photographs. Can we do selfies and all that sort of stuff? <laughs> Get out of anyway, whatever. That's what happens when you get old. <laughs> so what did you make of the first Grand Prix of the season in in general? Because I think we were all a bit fearful that it would just be a Mercedes domination, but I don't think it's going to be quite that bad, is it? Well, first of all, I think that on Friday, the place looked amazing. Saturday was a nightmare. It rained. Saturday morning, It was the place was like just like the lake that the circuit actually runs around. And then on Sunday, glorious day, beautiful day, as it should be for Melbourne, for Albert Park, for the opening round of the World Championship. If you've got a wet, grey, dark, miserable day, it kind of sets the scene for the rest of the season. Luckily, the weather was great. Racing wasn't great. It was Lewis's race to lose. And funnily enough, he lost it. <laughs> 
I mean, the poor kid, and I say kid because sometimes I think he still is a kid. Did you see him riding around on his scooter? Uh, or not? Well, there was a lot of stuff that was being aired you know, on, on Channel 10 who do an amazing job covering the Australian Grand Prix. So part of their fill-up before there was action on the track had Lewis going in and getting a scooter. I mean, he's still a kid, and that sort of summed it up. And he enjoyed it because he was mobile. He could kind of squirt away quickly without looking like he was running away. But, I mean, it, I, love, I love Melbourne. I love going to Australia. I think it is a great circuit in that it, it's old school. But regrettably, and it applies to so many circuits these days, overtaking is difficult. It's not totally the fault of the circuit. It's fundamentally the fault of the flaw that was introduced in 1983 when the FIA decided to get rid of ground effects. And everything subsequently has been a product of that. So you've now got cars that have got highly sensitive, complex, fragile aerodynamic assemblies, especially around the nose of the car, the front wing, the cascade wings. I mean, for the engineers that design it or the engineers that do the wind tunnel development or whatever the aero development that goes into it, those guys must be getting off on it like you know some kind of drug. <laughs> But frankly, it gives motor racing a bad name. And motor racing is meant to mean people compete and race and try to pass and do pass. But we're not getting any of that. The layout of Melbourne may not be the greatest layout in terms of accessibility to overtaking. But there are places into turn one, into turn three, certainly up into turn 13. I mean, how many passes actually genuine overtakes to their did we see in the Grand Prix? I mean, I, the memorable one for me was Daniel Ricciardo down the inside, braving it out into turn 13. I think there were five. I think five was the number that they came up with in the end. Well, is that, you know, is that five, acceptable? Five, I mean, five. I mean, are we getting down to single figures in a Grand Prix for the number of overtakes? That's pathetic. And is that, that's a big problem for Liberty, isn't it? Because, they're, you know, they're trying to, they're coming up with new theme tunes and, uh, mascots and all of this, you know, pomp and ceremony around the event. But if the event itself isn't good enough, then it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you do around I mean, it. The only, the only tunes that I know that really ever worked were the ones you sucked to clear your sinuses. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, you're not meant to laugh at your own jokes. <laughs> but theme tunes, look, they've got to stamp their identity on it. They've stamped their identity on the logo and that's caused some you know, differing views of opinions. I've got no particular opinion about it. I think it's Liberty's right to, to present Formula One the way they feel they want to present it. And if they have a new tune, I mean, look, love them. Stevie Nicks, Mick <laughs> Fleetwood, Lindsay Buckingham. Oh, I mean, you went, you drove John all McVie, the way. John McVie, John, John McVie. McVie and Chris McVie. I mean, you drove, Jack. I can remind people that you went... When we were doing other championships, you drove, I think, 800 miles one night round trip to see Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. And now we're denied it. But look, it's part of the transition. And transition is good. And I hope that the future for Formula One is also going to be good. But there is one factor that's going to deny it. And that is the intransigence of the owners of Formula One, but principally their partners, the teams, the team principals. You know, I don't know. I mean, I'm exasperated and I've only begun. Was there a time when all the teams would actually work together for the good of Formula One? Is I mean, you know, you think back even to the 
the the 50s and Colin Chapman coming in and Enzo Ferrari calling them garage easters and they were all at each other's throats then it's been the same forever hasn't it I I think I, I hark back to the 70s and the early 80s before Formula One grew into the monolith that it currently is and it was very much constructed of owner driver team principles I mean Bernie Eccleston owned Brabham Colin Chapman owned Lotus Kent Tyrrell owned Tyrrell Frank Williams eventually got to own Williams Grand Prix because he went through pretty awful times to get to the successful times. Teams were owned by people that actually owned the companies. They weren't manufacturers who then subcontract to the experts and the expertise. You've got exceptionally complex engine stroke power units, hybrids. And look, unquestionably, what these engines hybrids are doing running the amount of fuel they're running for the horsepower both hybrid and internal combustion in i mean it is amazing i mean it's the equivalent of putting the space shuttle into space in the auto industry but is formula one meant to be a technical exercise for manufacturers just to for them to go and sell road cars and have to deal with global legislation which is making anything internal combustion engine powered almost like well i mean don't start me it's <laughs> but you but you it's in, formula one is essentially meant to be sport and entertainment and we're getting bogged down i believe too much in very technical technical regulations both in terms of the the power unit the engine and the other side of it, which is maybe the side that I maybe would rant on more about, is on the aerodynamic side. And, I mean, in the days of ground effect, where the majority of the downforce was generated by aerodynamic tunnels under the chassis and in the side pods, most of the downforce was generated between the front and rear wheels. It's not complicated, and I'm sure that the, the brains that exist within motorsport, Formula One particularly, We'd love to go to a, a kind of regulation that would take the emphasis away from the nose and the tail of a Formula One car because that, to me, is one way. It's not an exclusive way, but it's one way wherein we might be able to get cars to race on track consistently more closely together and might encourage and enable overtaking to become somewhat less of, well, Lick your finger and see where you're going. I mean, five passes in a Grand Prix is a disgrace. So when you say that, you know, it's, it's now a manufacturer exercise for, for them more than, more than anything. You know, you raced for Alfa Romeo. What, what were they doing in Formula well, One? Well, I didn't race for Alfa Romeo. Did you I not? raced for Bernie Eccleston. Okay. And Bernie had a sweetheart deal with Alfa Romeo to supply engines. Maybe he got a bit of cash as well. But the point was he was getting engines supplied to him by a manufacturer but that was a different relationship that was a manufacturer providing engines the team was owned by bernie eccleston bernie owned that team ran that team directed it as he chose so did bernie frank um ken tyrrell would they all sit together and make decisions for the good of the sport or did they make decisions that would help them win I think the decisions that were made at the time, and bear in mind that the sport was governed by the FIA or the FFSA or whatever it might have been you know, from 1950 onwards. They were the rule makers, and technically they still are the rule makers. 
But in the 70s, there was fundamental stability because the cars were the beginning of aerodynamic Formula One cars. Wings appeared. First of all, you had these very high rear wings and very high front wings. But because the technology, the understanding of the, the levels of downforce that these wings were generating, the, the, the engineers hadn't worked out the loads and therefore the strength that they had to build in to the wing struts. So they collapsed. And in the case of the Spanish Grand Prix in Montjuï Park, my number one road <laughs> circuit in the world. And that's a scandal. It's not on the, on the... Well, that's where the Spanish Grand Prix, in my opinion, should be. Wonderful racetrack. And you can, if you ever go to Barcelona, you can still, still drive it. You can still Absolutely. drive the whole thing up past the Olympic Park now, which wouldn't have been there no. in 76, but the Olympic Stadium on your right and then down the hill to the bottom and then I mean, back there's up. There's a photograph taken of me in 1975 driving for John Surtees. And if you go past the pitch, you turn a little bit to the left, so a bit to the right, then to the left. And then there's a crest and you drop down very quick. These cars, my car was airborne by foot going over the, at about 160 mile an hour. I mean, where are images of cars doing anything other than looking like they're planted? Mm. I mean, if you took any one of the current Formula One drivers and put them on a racetrack and told them to go out and do a full weekend's practice, qualifying and race in one of those cars, they would come back an utter nervous wreck because they have no concept of what it is like to drive a car with tires that are like concrete and clay. In some cases, they were still untreaded tires with the levels of downforce, the lack of grip, the lack of sophistication. But what you did have is very, very compliant suspension. So the cars moved vertically quite a lot. And when they went into a corner and they braked, they dipped down, the nose went down and the rear came up. And when they accelerated, the back went down, the nose came up. I'm not suggesting that that's what made that era successful, but because the kind of technology that has evolved from then, you're talking the best 40 plus years now, we've got sophistication of aerodynamics, sophistication of the design, the manufacturer, the concept of everything that's on the grid. It's not working. It worked in the 70s because up until, I suppose, 77, when the Lotus 78 was introduced by Colin Chapman, and most of that work was done actually by Peter Wright, one of the Team Lotus engineers. And Chapman very cleverly managed to persuade the paddock that aerodynamics with the, the potential downforce from the middle of the car actually was not a big deal at all. Now, 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 as Chapman would say. <laughs> and what they did when they brought out the Lotus 79, which then was the definitive ground effect car of that era, when the car was in the, the garage or in the the paddock as it was in those days, they would cover up the gearbox immediately. Somebody would throw a big blanket over the gearbox. You can't look at the transmission because that's the secret to this car. And that was a game of you know, bluff that Chapman played very successfully. But putting the downforce between the front and rear wheels, to me, is a much more easy way to control the downforce, to give good levels of downforce. I think, in fact, if you look at the current IndyCar, they do something pretty similar. And if you look at the rear wing on an Indy car when it runs at Indy, where they're running at up to 230 miles an hour and cornering not far short of that, they've got a wing, I mean, it's, just, it's tiny. The downforce is coming from the wheels. And they manage to overtake. Mm. Sometimes it's a bit leery, but they do manage to overtake. Anyway, 
but you must have had races in the in the seventies where you didn't overtake anyone. No one overtook you. It was it was a processional race. You isn't that the nature of motorsport? Is that if the quickest guy starts at the front, then sometimes you will get races that are a bit boring. Well, I think that the the difference between the seventies, as an example, was that in essence that was true that the the quickest teams were the quickest teams, but there was about five of them that were consistently the quickest teams. Essentially, it was everybody had a Cosworth engine and a Hewland gearbox. And the only difference was in, for example, in 73, McLaren introduced the M23 McLaren, a long car and a very wide car. At the same time, Gordon Murray introduced the Brabham BT42, a very short car, a very narrow car. They both, in effect, did much the same thing. Different philosophies, different ideas. They both were competitive and both won races. And the McLaren ran successfully from 73 all the way to 76 when James Hunt, in effect, although he drove the M26 as well, but it was a little different version of the M23. So those cars were able to maintain a gradual development. And if you look at the Lotus 72, Mm. introduced in 1970 and it's still racing in 1976. I raced it in 1975 at Nürburgring. That's not doable. Now is it? You couldn't race a you no. couldn't race a Mercedes from last year for for six more years. No, no, not at all. The whole emphasis of Formula One has changed, and I mean, you've got this. First of all, the budgets the teams are operating at at the highest level are just massive, so there's twenty four seven development work going on at every level, technically in, in the you know in the mechanical side, on the aerodynamic side, and God knows what other sides I'm not even aware of. So that's an ongoing work in progress. And, I mean, the scale of I mean, an aerodynamic department and some of the top teams is probably way beyond the number of employees that worked in even McLaren at the end of 1983 when I had my last season. It's just mind-boggling. And the, fund is, the funding has become available via manufacturers. So the more money there is, the more money the teams will spend and find ways to spend. And on it goes. And, of course... What you're seeing, or have seen over many years now, is it, is it extremely difficult for a team, take Force India as an example, a team that last year you know, did an outstanding job, came fourth in the championship. Its roots hark back to the days of Eddie Jordan. And Eddie Jordan entered Formula One in 1991 with a good package, a beautifully thought-out car by Gary Anderson, Good engine, and that car finished fifth. The team finished fifth in the man. Those days are gone. You've got Haas, who are now in their third season, had a great weekend up until the first round of pit stops in, in Melbourne. Car showed, I mean, a massive leap forward in pace, and, and not just with one driver, but with both drivers locking out the third row of the grid. But you, their association and linkage to Ferrari is very close. And there will be people in the pit lane who will turn around and say it's a Ferrari painted in grey with the house logos on it. And they're saying, no, it's not. It's a car that's manufactured and developed by Delara. But there are certain elements within that car that hark closely to what Ferrari might have had in their 2017 car. But is it as good, isn't it, that you have more front-running competitive cars? You don't want Haas... You know, if you have a choice between having a Haas locking out the third row or scrabbling around with Sauber at the back you want you want more front running cars don't you no I want Haas locking at the front row 
Yeah. I want to see the, the nosebleeds in the paddock from Mercedes, <laughs> Ferrari, and from Red Bull when that has puts their two cars in the front row of the grid and they lead that Grand Prix or any Grand Prix and they win at first and second. Then I will sit back and say, maybe, maybe there's a hope for the other teams, the seven other teams outside of the top three. There is hope, therefore, for those teams to win or at least show competitive spirit, competitive pace in Grand Prix. Because right now, I mean, Haas may become... The, the fourth team out of the out of the, the, the ten teams that are running. I wouldn't hold my breath. Did you always think you could go into a weekend with a chance of winning a Grand Prix? Pretty much every weekend from maybe sort of nineteen I don't know, seventy five onwards when you were sort of with a relatively well, okay, so nineteen eighty two Keki Rosberg wins the World Championship. What did he win? One, one race? Well, he, won, he won one Grand Prix, yeah. Now, Lewis Hamilton wins World Championships and he's won, you know, 12 races or something out of out of the season. So, th- there was a lot more variety in winners back then. So, that must change your attitude. You must well, go into every weekend thinking, I can win a race. Well, in 1982, I think it was a very good season to illustrate because I think there was probably about, well, there was the McLaren, Brabham, Williams, Ferrari, Renault—that's uh, five teams alone—and uh, Ligier as well, who at any point in in the eighty-two season might have won one or two Grand Prix. I don't know. I do not see in the short term, even the mid-long term, that happening. It might happen if what might be being proposed by Liberty for the future of Formula One, I think, from 2022 onwards. But there's a a long, long way before we get to that period. There's another four years down the road. And to get a kind of agreement from the highest of the high in the paddock to the whoever the lowest of the low might be at the present time, and, of course, you've got all the politics that go with it because with engine manufacturers supplying additional teams – that gives them a bit of leverage in how might those lower-ranked teams vote? Would they align themselves with the manufacturer that assists with sweetheart deals to ensure that they can get their two cars onto the grid? Or are they completely independent to go however they want in terms of voting when it comes to regulation changes? And I'm still assuming that to make a regulation change, sporting code change, there has to be unanimity, not a majority. And to change to a majority, you have to have a u- unanimous vote in the first place. It's a mess. It's a mess. Of those teams in 82, the five or six you just met, what was their... Oh, I'm not expecting you to know to the pound, but were they all roughly the same budget for the for, season? Well, Ferrari, would, Ferrari would have had the largest budget. Yeah. And Renault probably would have had the second largest budget. As two full-on manufacturing teams. Alfa Romeo, likewise, were running their own team. And at any point, uh, Alfa Romeo could have also won a race. So there's probably seven teams mm. that were in a position to win a Grand Prix. But the, I mean, the where McLaren was probably different, let's say to Tyrrell or to Lotus, who were probably in decline at that stage. It was only when Senna joined the team in, in 95 that then their, uh, their success then returned to the, the Hethel-based team. So most of the teams were running on 
fundamentally, I don't know how many, maybe under a million or just around about a million pound budgets. But all kind of similar. McLaren might have had a slightly better budget because they were being sponsored by you know, the largest tobacco manufacturer in the world. And that was a, a, a probably a fuller budget. It needed to be to pay that little you-know-what from Austria called Nicky Lada. <laughs> oh, oh, they're, they're paying me because of my face, not because of my driving skills. I mean, he came out with that excuse. I mean, talk about bare-faced cheek. <laughs> so he was getting paid a lot more than you, was he? Yes, Nicky negotiated what he negotiated, and I negotiated what I negotiated, and there was an Atlantic Ocean probably between the two. <laughs> But, uh, but you know, if all those teams are on roughly the same budget, then they're going to be roughly the same pace in the way that, you know, you have to say Mercedes and Ferrari are the two biggest spenders these days. Yeah. And with Red Bull a close third, and that pretty much is how it's reflected on the racetrack. So do, do we need more teams spending that much money or a cost cap? Well, or a- maybe, maybe what we should do is turn around to those three teams and say, what it will be required of you to do in the future is the teams that you currently supply engines on a customer basis to, you now supply them with complete cars. So Williams ceases to be a manufacturer and he runs a Mercedes-Benz. Force India ceases to be a manufacturer, runs a Mercedes-Benz. And likewise with Ferrari, all the teams that are customers of Ferrari get the, the, the model year Ferrari. So instead of having independent manufacturers, let's just have three manufacturers and... Renault actually gets a Red Bull. They don't get run their own chassis. So Red Bull becomes the effective manufacturer on behalf of Renault. And Toro Rosso get the same car that Red Bull has. And if it's not much different now, what's going to happen to Honda? Well, maybe there's no place for Honda in the future. I don't know. That's another question. But certainly if you take the three principal manufacturers, just give them your current year model car and let them get on with it. Maybe we might get more competitive motor racing. I wouldn't necessarily hold my breath because you're still going to be bedeviled with this stupid kind of complex and unnecessarily, well, whatever, aerodynamics that go mm. with it. But do you, does that change the DNA of Formula One, having having customer cars like that, where you can just buy a car and drive well, it? Well, Jack, listen, if you painted every single car in Formula One right now white, and put them out in the racetrack and put all the drivers in the car with white helmets, I guarantee you, you would struggle yeah. as a race commentator to identify which driver was in which car. You might guess it. You might sort of think, well, that was Lewis, that was Vettel, that was you know, Danny Ricciardo. But you wouldn't necessarily be sure because the differences are so minute between the cars in a visual and certainly watching it on camera. How do you get the grid to be closer? How are you going to make it potentially a more level playing field? Well, that might be one way of considering and doing it. And if the manufacturers might agree to that, and I don't know if it's ever been suggested, but it might be something that they might find interesting, particularly if they get a bit of slack on areas where they're not prepared to compromise, why not? It'd be a lot cheaper for teams to just rock up at Brackley and pick up their three cars or their two cars and a bare tub or the same at Maranello or the same at Milton Keynes and just get a, 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 you know, a spares deal or have the teams have a, a customer service parts vehicle at every event as you do if you go to Blancpain for example which is where I work in now, Blancpain GT 
All the major manufacturers that are involved in that championship have a customer service vehicle. So if you knock off your spoiler or you, you write your car off, there's virtually a, a car available for you to rebuild your car with. You know, it's sort of it's sort of the more I talk about it, the more it kind of makes sense. <laughs> but one manufacturer could pull out and then suddenly you've only got two and not then another a, could pull but out. Not a bad then... thing. When a manufacturer pulls out I mean I remember many years ago Bernie Eccleston was fully aware of the danger when manufacturers were coming into Formula One again during the the, the, the original turbo era in Formula One, which was started in 77 with Renault, but then gathered momentum in 79 and 80 and then went forward. But the downside of manufacturers entering anything, particularly Formula One, is when they fulfilled their aspirations, they pulled the plug and go. Look, BMW pulled the plug and went. Toyota pulled the plug and went. Honda have been in and out. And who's to say at what point will any of the other manufacturers do the same thing? They don't give a damn. When they've achieved what they want to achieve or they don't see any benefits or they want to run off and do, you know, wind up your you know, electric motor and see how long it runs for, <laughs> that's up to them. So after Australia, do you think Mercedes are the best car on the grid? Are they who you're, you, you, can you see past them for the championship this year? To me, it's still Mercedes championship to lose, both in terms of manufacturing and, uh, and for drivers. Could they be blamed for losing the Grand Prix in Australia? I don't think I would blame uh, the team in particular. I think there were a set of circumstances which were unfortunate, both for Kimi Raikkonen, who did not look very happy on the podium. And in fact, he sort of kind of indicated to Sebastian Vettel, do not spray me in champagne. My sense of humor is at failure level. I don't expect that. Um, it just was fortuitous that we had a, a virtual safety, virtual car, safety yeah. car. Followed by a safety car. And because Ferrari opted to bring in Raikkonen at the point, Mercedes were more or less bound to bring in Hamilton. And remember, Hamilton didn't have his regular rear gunner mm. because uh, of Bottas screwing up uh, in qualifying. So Lewis was fighting a two-to-one battle. Mercedes were more or less required to bring in Lewis immediately following because they didn't want to give the advantage to Raikkonen. Vettel hung out a little bit longer. The virtual safety car was introduced. And he used that cleverly. Ferrari realized and used it cleverly. So I don't think that Mercedes did anything that I would say that was wrong. There may have been some issues about their uh, software that they looked at and maybe felt that there had been some maybe two or three seconds lost that they needed to get back out ahead of, of, of uh, Sebastian Vettel. But Lewis was distraught. I mean, he went from being Mr. Confident, I'm the guy, I'm going to win this race, I'm going to stick it up everybody, I'm going to assure you that I don't need to go through the winter regime of training. I mean, all his training was out in Hawaii or bo boogie boarding or wherever it was in Hawaii, surfing somewhere else, snowboarding in Japan. And he rocks up, cool dude, you know, I'm here. Uh, uh, what's on? Oh, oh, oh. But he did the business in every session he was in. Stunning pool lap, walk in the park. And he went from being Mr. Confident to suddenly, what happened? Was it my fault? Did I do something wrong? Why did you not tell me? I mean, just the transition in Lewis, in that level of confidence and self-belief, I couldn't believe what had happened. And then he made a mistake in his pursuit of Vettel, and that then sort of sealed 
his destiny to finish second. I mean, it is Lewis's championship to lose. It is Mercedes' championship to lose. I think Lewis actually exposed some fragility when that whole situation unfolded because he went from being the supreme confidant to somebody who self-doubt what happened. And he wasn't in a position. And when he pushed hard enough, he made that error. And that was something I would think that Vettel and other competitors around will begin to think, well, if Lewis finds himself through circumstance, wrong-footed, maybe there's a vulnerability that we can play on. Watty and Jack on F1. Well, that just about brings us to the end of the show, I think. Thank you very much, John, for all your insight. Thank you very much for listening. Hit the subscribe button because we'll be back in the future at some point. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 